This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted to be joined this morning by my friend, Rabbi Moshe Shiner. Moshe and I met in Jerusalem almost two years ago on a United Hatzalah mission where we spent the entire time together, three, four days, basically just learning and studying Torah. And it was a spectacular experience and the beginning of a friendship around Torah that sustains until this very day. Now, uh, Rabbi Shiner, who holds a master's degree of Talmudic studies and Jewish philosophy from the Rabbinical College of America, is the founder of the Palm Beach Synagogue, a congregation that he founded in 1994 and is now a thriving and wonderful community of Jewish seekers, learners, and members in Palm Beach. And so I'm so delighted to be discussing Torah on this podcast with Rabbi Shiner this morning. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, and you're very kind. How do you deliver such profound Torah thoughts so concisely? I mean, seven, eight minutes every day. Do you write it out? Have you written these things for years and suddenly the technology is giving you the opportunity to share it? How do you do it? No, I don't write it. I study, and when I find something that touches my soul and inspires me, then I want to share it with others. So it's a very simple formula. Find something that, like you said, find practical and inspirational. And that's, I think, two key words, because a lot of things are inspirational, but they're not so practical. You know, we want to enhance our lives and we want to find subjects that can make us better on a day to day basis. And the Torah never disappoints when you look to it for that. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to dig a little deeper to find the practicality. Sometimes it's right on the surface. So uh, getting to uh, practicality and inspiration, uh, we're here today to talk about Joseph and a specific aspect of Joseph's extraordinary and in Torah terms, long life. Moshe, you want to talk today about Joseph's reuniting with his brothers. And this is Genesis 45, 4, and it goes on for uh, several verses. So uh, Moshe, let's give us some context, some background as to what happens to cause Joseph to have to be reunited with his brother, and who is he when he's reunited, and what's the story up to this point? So, as you said earlier, Mark, no biblical figure gets more airtime than Joseph. Uh, There's about five Torah portions, almost the entire second half of the book of Genesis, dealing with the story of Joseph and his brothers. And I think because the Torah knew that this is such a common struggle that people have, whether it's about personal hurt and forgiveness, family feuds, a betrayal, and overcoming trauma from childhood. And here you have the story of Joseph. He has these grandiose visions of being a ruler. Uh, his brothers are jealous of him. They're envious of him. They, jealousy turns to hatred. And ultimately, they try to do away with him. First, they attempt to murder him. Then plan B is to sell him into slavery. He goes on miraculously, despite all these uh, hurdles in his life, to arise to greatness and become the viceroy of Egypt. And that in itself is fascinating, how a person could overcome, you know, childhood uh, circumstances and still follow their dreams in life, 
and not be deterred. But the fascinating section that we're looking at now is when he, his brothers come to Egypt to purchase food, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him, and ultimately he tests their loyalty to Benjamin to see if they change their ways, which is a critical component in Teshuvah, that the penitent has to change their ways. And after he sees that the brothers no longer are willing to you know, throw their younger brother under the bus, and when I say younger brother, not just younger brother, but the only other brother from the other wife, from Rachel, the beloved wife, then he reveals himself to his brothers. And the brothers here in this section are too embarrassed to even utter a word. Their jaws drop and they can't say anything because they're so humiliated to face the younger brother who they try to dispose of, and now he's the viceroy of Egypt. So up to this point, the Joseph, of course, recognizes his brothers. They, for a variety of reasons, perhaps because they haven't seen him since he was 17, perhaps because he's speaking Egyptian, perhaps because he's now in the position of being the viceroy of Egypt when they probably thought he was dead, they don't recognize him. And all of a sudden, he unveils himself and tells them who he is. Correct. And you can imagine the shock of the brothers to hear the words, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And as they're processing that, it says, they were so ashamed, they couldn't say anything in response. And here we find something remarkable, that Joseph starts comforting the brothers. Yes, He starts appeasing them and saying, don't feel bad, don't be angry, don't be disappointed with yourselves, because true, you sold me into slavery, but I don't see it that way. I don't see you as the catalyst of the events of my life. I see God in control. God sent me here as an ambassador to be the one to save the region from famine. And I just always find that verse mind-blowing. And I think if everyone could write that one verse down and carry it around with them in life, you know, what others do to you, that is not the reason it's really happening. Yes, they have free will and they are, they'll be held accountable for their actions. But God is in control and find the purpose and the meaning in every experience in life. And instead of harboring hate and anger uh, and resentment, try to look at it from a perspective of faith and trust. And then instead of being angry, you'll see those other individuals as merely carrying out the intention and the will and the plan that God has for your life. So Joseph, in this case, is really, I think Jonathan Sachs pointed this out, is really the, the first person to manifest the psychological principle we now know as reframing. There is no one in history who could be more uh, justifiably resentful than Joseph, and here are his brothers in front of him, and he has all the power in the world, and yet he reframes it. He said, it wasn't that you sold me into slavery after attempted fratricide. This is all part of God's plan. And so don't feel bad. You're just part of God's plan. You're 100% right. Reframing, or I like to call it sometimes narrative therapy. You know, we all have a story. The question is how you tell your story. You could tell a story of woe, or you could st tell a story of gratitude and recognition of God's hand. And I'll give you one word in this verse that tells the whole story. Hmm. If you look at verse 5, he says, And now, do not be sad, or do not be distressed, or reproach yourselves for having sold me here. You see, the word is Do not feel bad that you sold me here, because rather for sustenance, to save the land from famine, God sent me. So he says, you think you sold me, but actually God sent me. Now think about it. When you're sold, 
That means you're an object, you're passive, you have no uh-huh. power, you're powerless. When you're being sent, it's the whole op- extreme opposite. I was chosen to be sent on a mission. There's nothing more empowering than being a messenger of God. So he says, I don't view myself as an object being sold, a powerless victim. I see myself as a very empowered emissary of God to fulfill a special mission that I was chosen to fulfill. So that one word, sold versus sent, makes all the difference in how you tell yourself your life story. Beautiful. And it's really just a a masterful uh, display of strategic interpretation. So Joseph could interpret this story in any number of ways, but he strategically and purposely interprets it in a way that is good for his family and ultimately is good for mankind and good for God. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of it. Not only does that narrative help him cope and survive and rise to greatness, which you have to ask yourself, how does uh, someone who went through such oppression becomes so great. And it's clearly that mindset that enabled him to do that because he never saw himself as a victim. And Jews typically don't v- dwell on their victimhood. Although we have a lot to complain about the way we've been treated throughout the centuries and millenniums, that's not the mindset of the Jew. The Jew always says, I'm an ambassador of God in this world, and I'm here for a mission and a purpose. I think Joseph's mindset has really infected every Jewish mind. And that's the way we survive through millenniums of anti-Semitism and oppression. Uh, But it also allows him to help his brothers see themselves as not as culpable and relieve them of some of their guilt and the burden and enable the family to heal and come back together. Because as you know, Mark, a lot of times you're willing to forgive someone, but they can't forgive themselves. So Joseph has a dual goal. He wants to he wants to survive and, and, and overcome his circumstances, but now he has a goal of getting his brothers to be willing to accept his forgiveness because he could offer it, but at the end of the story, it's very questionable if they ever accepted his forgiveness. They really never forgave themselves. You see that at the end of Genesis, where after their father's death, they're still living in fear of him. Right, right. And I think in, in terms of what you uh, said before about how stunned they were when they realized who they were talking to, Joseph has this really extraordinary way of introducing himself, which enables them to begin this act of reconciliation. He could have just said, I am Joseph. They knew who Joseph was. Instead, he says, I am Joseph, your brother. And by declaring himself to be their brother, not in a biological sense, but in an existential sense, he's giving them the permission to change their relationship. You know, I love that, Mark, because that's a great observation. He throws in the word brother. Obviously, he's their brother. Maybe he's saying it to say, let's remember we're brothers. But you just triggered a thought in my mind that it goes one step further. He says, I am Joseph. That's big news. Your brother. uh, Okay. But now he says, is my father still alive? Now, the question is, the commentaries ask the question, what do you mean, is your father still alive? The whole plea of Judah was based on the fact that we have an elderly father. And now I just realized that maybe he was changing the focus. Like, don't dwell on me. Dwell on our father, our father. We have a common father. And our goal should be to get together now so at least our father could have some peace in his elderly life and see his family reunited. Right. So I believe this is what Pope John the 23rd was referencing when, when Pope John the 23rd takes over the papacy in the early 60s and he greets this group of Jewish leaders, which at the time was a somewhat radical act. And he steps down from his throne and he says, I am Joseph, your brother. Wow. And in that moment, with that statement, 
he's able to convey to them that the relationship we had in the past, it's about to change. It's as close as he can come to an apology for the history of his predecessor and predecessors. And it was by saying, I am Joseph, your brother, by adding brother and through this biblical reference that he presumed they would get, and I think they did, that the relationship between the Catholic Church and the Jewish people could begin to change. That's very beautiful. And I'll tell you, thinking about it now with you, you know, we always say that blood is thicker than water. And I think what this story is saying is that there are certain bonds that no matter what should never be severed. And that's why I think it's very practical, because sadly, you see sometimes families, whether it's brothers or, you know, siblings or parents and children, we have bonds and relationships are severed. The Torah is saying, you know what? A family should always remain a family. And even if there's deep hurt and betrayal, you should overcome it just the way Joseph's story is a paradigm for that. And I think there's one other key word that's overlooked in verse five. The very first word in the sentence says, Viata, and now huh. do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. And then he goes on to say, because God had a plan. But why is that opening word, and now, in that verse? He should have just said, don't be sad, don't be distressed. And I think that word is the key. The problem with relationships that turn sour is that we can't get over the past. We're still stuck in the past. We keep on reliving that terrible event in our lives, which often is legitimate, like with Joseph and the brothers. I, I was really betrayed by my, by my family. And, the, and Joseph says, let's live in the present, Viata, right now. We, we could start a new chapter. You've demonstrated that you've changed your ways because you were ready to defend Benjamin with your life. And I rose to greatness. So we're both in a much better place than we were when this story happened, you know, 22 years ago. So why should we live in the past? Let's live in the present. Viata, let's start a new le- chapter. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem in many relationships. And by the way, this doesn't only have to be family. It could be between friends or or partners, or whatever it may be. But the lesson is that George Burns once said, the only smart person I know is my tailor, because every time I come to him, he takes a new measurement. You know, we have this expression, I I, I size them up. We size up people, and we pass judgment on them, and then we remain with that judgment for the rest of our lives. It doesn't matter that it's 10, 20, 30 years later, we're still measuring them by the same yardstick. And that's why someone once said that repentance or forgiveness is giving someone the space to become the type of person that would have never hurt you in the first place. Beautiful. Do you often, do you also relate this to, I think it's Deuteronomy 30, where Moses channeling God says, behold, I have set before you today, life and good and death and evil. Because what you were saying now here, it's also today, like, well, when else would you set it before them? Absolutely. And I think that's, this is a story of forgiveness. That's Moses telling the Jews to choose the right path in life, goodness versus evil, life versus death. And I think they're the message. And do it today. He said, I set before you today. And his message is don't be weighed down by the mistakes of yesterday. Too often people say, I'm a goner. It's too late for me. I've done so many bad things. What difference does it make, you know, if I try to be good today? And Moses is saying to the Jews, that's 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 the device of the evil inclination saying to you, all your efforts are for naught because the mistakes of the past will permanently, you know, condemn you. And Moses is saying, no, today is a new day, irregardless of what you did yesterday and irregardless of what you may do tomorrow. Today is the day you could control and do the right thing and change for the better. And, you know, we're now during the days of the counting of the Omer. 
And every day is a separate count. Today is the 26th day, and it's the same message. Every day is a day unto itself. Make each day count. I believe it was uh, Eli Wazel who said uh, the secret that God gave to Adam was not how to begin, but how to begin again. I love that. Yes. Uh, Eli Wazel has a very profound thought on that. He says that what was the greatness of Adam and Eve? He says, imagine waking up one day to realize that your child was murdered and the murderer was your other child. Hmm. That could be like the greatest double tragedy any parent could experience. One child was murdered and my other child is a murderer. And yet Adam and Eve went and had a third child and they continued to create life. And he said that as a Holocaust survivor, that, you know, as a survivor, I guess he related to that story saying, when you wake up and you realize that, you know, six million of your brethren were murdered and the murderers are fellow human beings, how do you start all over after that? And his inspiration came from Adam and Eve. And that's the most powerful example, I think, of the idea that today's a new beginning. You can always begin again. Absolutely. And perhaps Joseph's also teaching us that the way to begin again is to acknowledge the other as your brother. Now, we saw how Joseph did that. Now, didn't Jacob also do this when when he rebuked those young men at the well, when he said, uh, it's too early in the day for you not to be working? He opens that conversation to these young men who he has not met as my brothers. Yeah, great, great point. Exactly right. That's what he says to them. He approaches, them, even though they were strangers, he just met them a moment ago. But you know, he addresses them as brothers. And, you know, it's one thing to say the word my brother. It's another thing to say it genuinely that the person really feels that you love them like a brother. And therefore, the rebuke is not coming from a place of uh, ill will. On the contrary, it's coming out of love. You know, I'll just tell you a quick story. Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, uh, who had a synagogue in Manhattan, was known for his generosity. And he would always stop and give money to beggars. And one time a beggar in the street came up to him and asked him for money and he checked his pocket and he didn't have any money. So he said, oh, my holy brother, because that's the way he talked. He said, my holy brother, I'm sorry, I don't have any money to give you. And the poor man said to him, it's okay, you've given me more than most people. And he said, what do you mean? I haven't given you anything. He says, no one ever calls me a holy brother. Wow, beautiful. Now, uh, Moshe, thank you for such, and between you and me, a such a characteristically fascinating conversation about Torah and how it can um, not just inspire, but really help us live more meaningful lives. And, you know, just today, just talking with you about how just this one passage in Joseph teaches us how to rebuke, how to be rebuked, how to begin, how to begin again. There's just so much pregnant in every passage in the Torah. And thank you for helping us call it out. Now, um, just one final question, which actually relates to uh, a different text, quite a different text. This is André Malraux's 1968 book entitled Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story of running into somebody, a man with whom he served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, in all of your years of hearing confession, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned that everyone is much less happy than they seem and that there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So you opened your shul as a young man in 1994, and so you've been the rabbi at the Palm Beach Synagogue for several decades. What are two things that you've learned about mankind in all your years of serving as uh, the Jewish leader of the community? The first thing I think I've learned is that you never know the depth of someone's goodness. I am amazed almost on a daily basis or on a weekly basis by people who 
you would just think they're ordinary people. There's nothing on the surface that's extraordinary about them. They're not, you know, wildly successful or famous, but who do things that are just remarkable. And they don't do it for any public recognition or fanfare. They just do it out of the depths of their heart. And I am always inspired by the goodness of my congregants. Just yesterday, an elderly man in my congregation who's not in the best of health and quarantined, you know, needed food. And there's this one young guy in my congregation until this coronavirus. I never knew this about him, but he called me early on and said, you know, if anyone needs anything shopping, call me. I'm happy to help. And this guy, you know, the minute I send him information, he immediately calls the person, gets the shopping list, goes down to the kosher market in Boca, which is about a 45 minute drive. Hmm. And he's doing this quietly. And I never saw this, all this. I knew he was a nice person, but I never experienced that depth of goodness. So I, I, I think that's one thing I've, I've come to appreciate. Don't underestimate people's greatness and value. And, and you never know who someone really is. So spend time getting to know them. And then the, uh, on the other extreme, I would say that, you know, Palm Beach has a lot of very uh, uh, powerful and wealthy people here. And I know that, you know, from a distance, sometimes we look at some of these people and think, wow, they have it all. But as the rabbi, sometimes you realize that we're all the same. We all have the same human struggles and insecurities. And that, that's what, what you just quoted, that we all have the child inside of us. You know, you could be 70 years old and you could be a billionaire and you could be, you know, private jets and private yachts and, and the whole world adores you and worships you. But you still have the same insecurities and the same need for a, a, approval and validation and, you know, and the same you know, struggles that, like you said, that, that the child inside of you, I heard this great quote recently, it said like this, in a good marriage, there's room for the husband, the wife, and all the children, something like all the ch children within. In other words, when you marry someone, you're not just marrying them as they are today, you're taking the child inside of them as well. So all the childish experiences of that person. So we never seem to fully outgrow it. We learn how to handle it better. We learn how to, you know, keep it in check. But you realize that all human beings have the same common fears, the same common ambitions, and the same common dreams. And um, we really recognize the oneness of all of mankind, which I think we're seeing during these days as well. But I think I see that on a regular basis. Well, uh, Rabbi, thank you, um, as ever, for such a fascinating conversation. And I look forward to the day, God willing, soon when we can get together in person uh, once again. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, God bless you for everything you do. And I love learning and talking to Torah with you. You always teach me something new. You are